the 12-factor app methodology was created by developers at Heroku after their experience working with hundreds of thousands of apps on the Heroku platform. They noticed that successful apps shared a core set of things in common. First published in 2012, the 12-factor app attempts to distill these commonalities into 12 principles. But the 12-factor app is now over seven years old, which is several lifetimes in the technology world. Is it still applicable to today's modern cloud-native applications? In this episode of MobyCast, John and Chris go through the 12 factors, explaining each one in detail and debating its relevance to today's cloud-native applications. Welcome to MobyCast, a show about the techniques and technologies used by the best cloud-native software teams. Each week, your hosts John Christensen and Chris Hickman pick a software concept and dive deep to figure it out. Welcome, Chris and Rich. It's another episode of MobyCast. Hey, John. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. All right, let's just see what we've been up to. Rich, how about you? What have you been up to? Just diving into project management, learning that, struggling with it, <laughs> having fun with it. We, uh, we're growing as a team, and I need to start getting better at it. So I've been right trying, on. and the big thing that I've been doing is trying to, you know, it used to be the case that I would do PM and business stuff like after hours. And it's funny, the hardest thing for me to do is actually transition that into like the opposite, right? Like, so like my day is full of project management and strategy. And then if I have to do anything more meticulous, I do that at night. It's crazy how hard it is to like break through muscle memory. Yeah. And I mean, not to just to sort of clarify what I think you're saying, you're doing actual company leadership and employee leadership, not just not just making sure that the tasks are getting done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing that too, but um, I'm trying to spend the, you know, the actual business hour days doing strategy, which is something I always just did nights and weekends, right? How fun. What a, what a great transition. I love that. Uh, when, it, when it's an actual full transition, I'll be, I'll be right there with you. But right now it feels <laughs> like I can't get anything done. <laughs> right on, right on. How about you, Chris? What are you up to? Um, yeah, just uh, kind of heads down, uh, doing some uh, thinking work around MobyCast and um, some other new initiatives that we're thinking about here at Kelsa's finish the book, the Bitcoin billionaires. Um, again, highly recommend it. And, uh, now I've started a new book about, um, a, uh, fellow that, uh, basically duped all of the, um, folks in the wine industry, especially the high end wine industry where he was counterfeiting really expensive rare bottles of wine and really just kind of fooled everyone and oh, i just love that that's so cool yeah. so it's kind of interesting to see how he kind of i mean he just came out of nowhere and really it's he's still a big kind of mystery his background and like whether or not did he did his family really have any money but um literally going through a million bucks a month and buying wine and selling wine and just throwing wine around and just wheeling wow. and dealing and and just getting all these incredible parties and people and Hollywood people and investment bankers and wall street and, uh, all these fancy dinners and everything else. And then at the end of the day, it all just kind of crashes down once folks realize that, <laughs> you know what, this is not, you know, a 1921 bottle of, you know, Bordeaux that he, that he says it is. How, you know, so, he got caught. I wonder how many people are not getting caught. Cause it's like, you know, that's that's what goes for, for credibility in this day and age. If you say it with confidence, it must be true. Like our mm-hmm. listeners said that the only way to get ahead in software and to make a million dollars as a international remote developer is to listen to MobyCast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. 
Right. I mean, this is at the end of the day, like it's all about (laughs) sales and, and relationships and making people feel like this is right. Right. So it's not like the best product necessarily wins or the best service. Right. It's just whoever's making that decision, just convincing them to make that decision. Mm -hmm. And that decision is not made made solely um, on a quantitative basis. Right. It's actually very qualitative. It's all coming back to Steve Jobs' reality distortion field. He's sort of the like the the main person I think of, and then everyone's just emulating that in every different area. Yeah, he he was he was the master, or I mean, for our time, right? I mean, there's right, right, plenty sure. of people, plenty of people before him. Yeah, um, like Russ Buechner or whatever. Yeah, or P.T. Barnum, right? <laughs> right there, you go. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the 12-factor app, and this is the beginning of a series on architecture. And I think this is exciting because I think a lot of people that listen, um, especially as we as we you know try to re- try to talk about stuff that's really valuable for remote and international developers, a lot of people may have less access to you know just architectural decisions and the the kind of water cooler talk that happens when high performing teams make our architecture decisions and what they're talking about how they're making these decisions what they have in mind when they're when you're you know when people are starting a new project or when people are um, looking at an existing project and doing a kind of like an architectural evaluation to decide you know to figure out how it needs to change and grow in a better way this is stuff that, you know, like if you Google it, you just get a bunch of random blog articles that may even disagree with each other. If you go on, you know, if you take computer science curriculum, it's really hard to come across this stuff. And especially even if at the upper levels when, you know, there are people that do study computer architectures and software architectures as, as part of their PhDs. And I don't know if you've ever read some of those papers, Chris, but they just are so removed from the reality sometimes of what happens inside businesses that it's not really that useful. Um, yeah. I mean, it's the kind of the difference between theoretical and the practical, right? So it's, yeah, like, yeah. Um, it's clean room environment versus real world and mm-hmm. two That's totally true. different things. Right. So it's like, yeah, you can go try to read a paper, but it's like, <laughs> how do I apply this? Right. Right. Yeah. So we'll try to help our listeners think about this stuff and talk about it from our own perspectives. Even though we're going to use some frameworks to talk about it, I think we'll be able to talk about our own experience um, as it relates to these frameworks. So Chris, do you want to kick us off on the 12-factor app? Yeah, so um, you know, this is one that um, you listeners may have heard, um, and it may be something that you haven't heard about um, before. Um, it actually is pretty well-known in the, in the industry, um, it is. Um, it was first first started surfacing around 2011. Um, it, I think it was first published in 2012. What it is is it's a it's a kind of a list of characteristics that identify that um, kind of identify what makes a good web application. And this was based upon the observations being made by the folks at Heroku. Um, which is the PaaS platform as a service company that was really pretty popular for a while, especially I think in the in the Rails community, where lots of apps were were using Heroku to to for their hosting and for for deploying. It was really easy to to spin things up and really didn't have to worry about infrastructure that was all taken care of you take, taking care of it 
for you by Heroku. Um, but they looking at all these apps being deployed on their system, seeing like what works, what doesn't work. And so the result of that was like, hey, here are these 12 things that we think are critical to have an app that were a web app that works really, really well. Right. And so that is this, that's what this framework's about. Again, 2012 is when it was first published. So that's, you know, in, in, in the tech industry, that's, that's seven years now. That's, that's, that's like, I mean, we're talking dog years, right? So this is like, <laughs> right. this is like 50 years of, of progress essentially has gone by. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we're still talking about this. And it's actually, for the most part, it's, it's still applicable. Um, it's, um, and we will kind of get into this, you know, just, just how, how um, relevant is it still? And, you know, does it need to be updated or, you know, are there other frameworks that are, that are better? Um, but I think, you know, from as far as just like the, the basics of like, Hey, these are table stakes and it's, it serves a, a really, a really useful purpose um, from that regard. Um, and for sure. Uh, you know, yeah. if everybody if if everybody did these twelve things, then we would have so much better software out there in the world. Absolutely, yeah. And as we go through it, we'll we'll even like some of these things are just like, well, like of course you do that. Like who wouldn't do that? And the the fact of the matter is, is that there's still a lot of people that don't um, do some of these things. So so we'll um, so we'll take that into account as we go through it and and uh, and see what we what we come up with. Number one. Number one, so code base. Um, the first factor is code base, and right. So, and really, what this is saying is just that you should have a single code base for each one of your web apps, um, and that should be tracked in version control. Um, which <laughs> I can't like. <laughs> I know. I mean, this again seems like well, what? Like why? Why wouldn't? I mean, who who doesn't do that? And I mean, I'm always kind of blown away when you see like the surveys and, and the, the numbers of um, how many people are not still using version control for their code. And it's yeah, just, I mean, over a project in 2011, 12, maybe 13, somewhere in that range. I can't remember exactly, but, but we got the code base off the server, off the production server. That's where we got the code. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and for me, it's like any percentage of code, you know, above zero, you know, above or below 100% that's not in version control, like that's just like a, a you know, a, a shocker. So, um, but it, it is, it's, it's, um, there's still folks out there that, that are not using version control. So please use it. And then, you know, this is, this, this factor is also saying like, don't have multiple apps sharing the same code base. You want to have a single oh, app nice. yeah, for exactly. code base. Yeah. And it, and it could be that your one app has multiple different repositories, you know, multiple different, say, Git repositories, but, just as long as you don't have multiple apps in one Git repository, then that's fine. Right. And, and that's the philosophy of this particular um, framework. You know, it's for other, I mean, some people may be familiar with the concept of a, of a monorepo. And so, you know, there's other, there's other camps out there that say, eh, like, well, you can, you, it's better to have just a single repo and have all your apps in it. So there's pros and cons. I think, you know, what we go through here with the 12 factors, I think, you know, from, from my point of view, like this, this is the way that um, I lean towards the, the, the school of thought that one repo per app. Um, but there, there's, there's other um, perspectives out there as well and opinions. Right. And if you're thinking about this stuff, then you're a step ahead. All right. Yeah. So number yeah. two, 
Um, yeah, and maybe before we get into that, just one other quick thing here. Just to, um, I think one of the reasons too why the twelve factor app now is um, kind of still relevant, still being talked about, and it's kind of made a little bit of resurgence is because of microservices. So a lot, almost just about everything that applies here to the twelve factor app is really kind of spot on, like microservices, right? So what we just talked about a single single um, app in your in for per code base like microservice so um, so keep that in mind as we go through this so um, factor two is dependencies so um, this says explicitly declare and isolate your dependencies and really what this is saying is like don't rely on any implicit existence of uh, of, of anything that you we're require explicitly defining our dependencies and not relying on implicit I mean, are, are we doing some circular definition here, Chris? No. <laughs> no, because by explicitly declaring your dependencies, you're... You're, you're not relying on explicit. You're not, you're not relying on implicit, right? Right? So it's... it's, it's uh, so you're very much... And, and really all this thing is like, make yourself a self-contained unit, right? Like, whatever your software is, is like, it has everything it needs in order to to work, right? It's not gonna. So if your if your app requires like something like an image processing tool, like Image Magic or something like that, like you can't, you can't, your app can't assume that Image Magic is installed in its environment, right? Like you have to take, you have to handle that. I mean, it's you, you do have to at some point say like something exists, right? So it may be a hypervisor exists or something like that, right? But at the end of the day, like um, for those anything like a you know above that level like explicitly declare isolate those dependencies make your app a a you know a self self um, confined unit and there's lots of tools here that can help with this um so you know declare all your dependencies um via some sort of manifest and so just about every single programming language and tech stack out there has these things so um things like uh python have pip um and Things like JavaScript have um, npm and 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 package JSON. So package JSON would be the the declaration manifest, right? Listing all the dependencies that your particular app needs. Um, and uh, and then check. It, like everyone that's using a web framework just got to check this box off. Yep. Yep. Indeed. Um, and then you know use a dependency isolation tool during execution as well, right? And so this is. Um, you know, we have one of the best dependency isolation tools possible right now, right? And it's called Docker. Um, containers are really great at this. Um, so the um, when this was written, you know, back in 2011, 2012, containers really didn't exist at that point. They were, they were in their infancy. And so the isolation was really at the app level instead of at the kind of the OS level, at the container level. So there are... Um, these language, these these tech stack frameworks provide some sort of um, bare bones isolation, right? Like so, like I think Rails and that community, they have uh, the concept of um, basically different um, folder structures, right? Like different directories for different versions of an app. And Python mm-hmm. has something similar with virtual env, and but that's at the application level. Now we have much better isolation tools with just at the container level, um, and you know that way. You have your your image, and everything that that image, you know, everything has to be on that image, right? Like it's you, you're really not going to be able to. It's not going to be able to implicitly rely on anything because that image is it's either going to work or it's not, um, and it's just 
needs a VM in order to host it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Next number um, three. Yeah, config. Um, Actually, so, we're on number, yeah, yeah, number three. Wow, <laughs> already lost track of it. Sorry about that. Gosh, I thought I was going <laughs> to rule that. <laughs> so you're going to, you know, you're going to have to take your uh, shoes off here shortly. Because <laughs> um, we're going to get past 10. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. So fa factor three is config, right? So um, here it's basically just saying, hey, have a strict um, separation of config from your code, right? So anything that is configuration related, right? So like anything that's going to likely to var vary between deploys, like different environments, like staging versus prod, um, things like uh, settings that can be changed or tweaked or whatnot, um, that's all config. And so that should be separate from the code and um, you should be able to um, uh, make changes to that configuration without doing a redeploy um, of, your, of your code or, or, or re you shouldn't require any code changes to do that, right? So um, the 12 factor, right. yeah. Are you saying also, like, I guess, in my opinion, it'd be nice if you could keep your app running mostly through config changes. That would be nice. But I guess that's, that's not necessarily what this is saying. No, no. I mean, it, it, that's, that's pretty sophisticated, mm -hmm. um, for sure. Um, and I, I think, you know, now, like, that's definitely a good, a good goal to have um, back when this was, you know, developed in 20, again, 20, 2011, 2012. Just having that separation was like a really big step. And, and again, like this is, that's the first thing. Um, mm -hmm. This is the run walk, if you will. Um, right. And I guess the crawl, the crawl, the crawl walk. Um, right. Yeah. And, and this may be talking more about environment config. Like, you know, this is where my, these are where the directories, where my dependencies are, or these are, these are some secrets that I need to talk to my, you know, third party server services, like all that stuff. It's basically saying don't, don't have that in the code, have it in some separate file that I can change fairly easily. Yeah, in fact, yeah, in fact, I mean, they, they go so far as to say environment variables are really that what they recommend you do. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, nowadays it's like that's not necessarily the, the, the best way anymore, um, best mm -hmm. practice, right? But the concept um, definitely applies, right? So um, it's, these are, again, this config, these are settings like, okay, what's my, database connection string like who which 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 database server am i talking to for this particular environment right and it's going to be different for your dev versus mm -hmm. your staging versus prod um and then you know like what email address is like the report going to and that again might be different based upon your environment that you're that you're running in so that kind of stuff again just separate from your code um keep it keep it separate yeah, and really from day one, right? Even if you're writing a quick play app, you're like, you just get used to it. Just get used to having that stuff always separate. And frameworks help with this. Rails helped with it. I, mm -hmm. I definitely remember the Python and, and JavaScript frameworks help too. JavaScript, I think, maybe a little less opinionated about this, but that's kind of maybe easy to put some of this config into code. But it, it always is, right? It's always easy to put yep. config into code. So yep. just don't ever do it. Yeah. And then you'll get in the habit of not doing it. That was like a lesson I remember learning early in my career is like, like just taking that extra 10 minutes, five minutes to, to not put a piece of config in code and then having watching that 10 minutes go down to eight minutes and then six minutes. And then, two, you know, like before long, it's just muscle memory. 
Yeah, and, and not only that, it's like when you don't do it, you know how bad <laughs> yeah. it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. like you know, like I know I shouldn't be doing this, right? right. So, but it's like you'll it, so yeah, just just don't do it. Cool. Yeah. Number All four. Right. Four um, backing services, and um, so this one is really just basically saying everything that your app is talking to every every um, external dependency um, that you're relying on services from, just treat it as an attached resource. And th this is really talking about like databases for the most part, especially given the time frame when this was with that this was written. Um, so, um, you know, they talk about how like the your your app should not make really a distinction between any local versus third, they call it third party services, right? So this is like, you know, if you're using Postgres as a database, like your your code shouldn't shouldn't make any difference between running Postgres local versus consuming Postgres via RDS running in Amazon um, type thing, right? So you should be able to swap out, you should be able to change between those 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 different services with just a config change. Um, there shouldn't be any code changes um, for that. So perfect. Um, yeah. So think of each distinct. So those two are almost the same, right? Config and backing services end up being kind of the same idea in, in a way. They, they go hand in hand, right? They're yeah. they're they're um, they're very much related, um, um, but they're they they are still separate. Sure, sure, right? sure. Yeah. Because um, you could imagine it's like you have like a function for attaching to the database, and it's like if config setting is RDS, then here's the function to use, and if config setting is you know local, then this is the and that would not be the right thing to do here. <laughs> okay, good point. Yeah. yeah, that's a great example. <laughs> All right, um, five. Uh, so this one's called build, release, and run. Um, and the point here is that you know they say strictly separate your build. In your run and your release stages, um, so each one of these is a distinct phase of your software, and it should be treated as such. And like one of the examples they they just give here is like you know you shouldn't be able to build or change your code at the runtime stage, right? So <laughs> this is like people have we have at some point in our career, we've all done this, right? We've SSH'd into a prod machine. We've changed some code, mm -hmm. right? To fix a bug, right? Like, yeah. So, but we know like, that's not good. Don't mm -hmm. do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you need to change code, you go back and you, you do that in the build stage mm -hmm. um, and you do a new build and you do a new release and then it goes and, and, and it, it's run. Um, another thing they recommend in this is just every release that you do should have a unique release ID and those releases are, it's basically think of it as an append only ledger, right? You can only go one way. Um, and this is really, you know, even for like rollback. So it's like, even if you have to roll back, just think of that as that that's a new release. You've incremented your release ID. Um, right. So again, that's that append only ledger concept to it. Um, and this, I think this particular factor is a little bit tougher to do in, in the real world. And I think, a lot of us don't do this as as um, completely as we could. I mean, we definitely have a strict separation between the build, release, and run. But I think a lot of times, just having that the concept of a release ID and being able to um, roll back, having the equivalent rollback functionality, do that correctly in like the same kind of manner and not do something special. Um, I think you know, that's worth talking about. Like, 
is that saying, so say we have release ID one, two, three. So now three is in production. And they're like, oh, actually three has a problem. We need to roll back to number two. Is this saying, no, you don't go back to number two. You actually create a number four that was the same as number two? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Which makes it great because it, it gets really kind of, um, it gets really uh, confusing on just where things are at once you start doing that, right? Because like mm. this, this gets into like what kind of branching model you use and, and just what your philosophy is for um, building and deploying and your, your software, right? But like if you're using something like a Git flow model um, where say like master contains the code that's in prod and, you know, you maybe have a staging branch that has the staging branch code or something like that. Um, so if you start doing things like rolling back, um, like now what's in production doesn't, that's not actually what's in master anymore. Right, right. right? I so, guess the thing is that the, the thing that's hard about this, I imagine 99% of teams would just go back to number two and they wouldn't make a number four. Like this is, this feels like a pretty tricky rule, especially because when you roll back to number two, what you're ensuring is that you're not making something new. You're going back to the exact bits that used to work. And that you really do want that. You absolutely need to be confident that when you roll back, you're going back to an existing set of bits. And I think what this is saying is, yeah, 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 yeah. Go get the go get those same same exact build files, but just stamp them with a new release number. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, you, I mean, and, and you, I mean, you can. There's definitely a bunch of different um, ways to approach this. I think you know part of what's missing here is again that traceability between releases and code mm-hmm. and a lot of it we just don't have that in place and so if you actually did have something that's tracking this and can kind of you you have kind of a releases um a release manager um dashboard if you will that's kind of showing you okay this is what's in this environment in this environment versus this one um handling the rollbacks handling the promotions then you can I'm literally kind of imagining setting up a, a table in AWS's quantum ledger database that all it does is keeps track of ha- like git hash commits, mm-hmm. git commit hashes, and then mm-hmm. assigns them to release numbers. Because like mm-hmm. like that's kind of the idea, right? Like append only and always and but like the new number could be the same previous git hash, right? It could be the, or the same, I guess, or or like Docker. Registry hashes, I guess, do those have hashes too? Yeah, they do. Um, you know, for, for image IDs, like the new release number still puts that same image ID because we were rolling back. Mm-hmm. So we go back to that old image that yep. worked. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And like, you know, the important point here is just making sure that everyone's on the same page as far as just like what that process looks like and wh- how they determine what's, what's where. Right. So, so now it's like the team knows that it's like, oh, it's not necessarily what's in master is what's in prod. I need to go to the release ledger and that will let me know what's there. Very cool. Just a sec. There's something important you need to do. You must have noticed that MobyCast is ad-free, but Chris and John need your help to make this work for everyone. Please help the MobyCast team by giving us five stars on iTunes, writing positive reviews, and telling your colleagues, friends, neighbors, children, and pets about the show. Go ahead and do it now. Great. I promise not to ask you to do that again. All right. All right. So number five, or is that no? 
we're on to six. You're second hand now. <laughs> we're off. We're off. We're off the left hand. We're on to the right. <laughs> All right. Um, six is um, processes. So um, you know the, the the core principle here is just that your app should be a stateless process, right? And that is the fundamental unit here. And because it's stateless and share nothing, that makes this very easy to to scale out. If you do have any anything that does require state, like that goes into one of those those backend services, right? Like that's a some sort of database or whatnot, but that's separate from your app. Um, so processes are the first class citizen here. This is the fundamental unit and should be stateless. So never assume that anything's cached in memory or on disk to be available for a future request or, or job. So you you can you know it's, it's definitely fine to use caching like you can use say like slash temp um for for scratch work or whatnot but your app should always be able to recover from that like it doesn't require that to be there right it's just an optimization yeah that's the main main thing i was thinking about is like you might need to have a ton of stuff in memory that you can count on being there but but yeah your app maybe as part of starting up can go recreate that or if it ever gets lost for some reason Mm -hmm. it can recreate it yep all right um moving on seven port binding this one is uh I think it's a little bit dated, and it just goes with um, you know where the the um, the state of technology was back then. And so, this particular principle just says like exp- you should export your services via port binding, and um, it kind of again it goes with the the idea that it's self contained. So, if your app is being accessed via like HTTP, then it needs to expose a port that listens on for for HTTP traffic. And so this is really like saying like don't you're not going to rely on the runtime injection of a web server, right? If you, if you need HTTP, like that all has to be supplied by your app itself, right? Like so don't don't assume that like Nginx is installed already in your execution environment, or if like you're a Java app, like Tomcat's not already installed. Like that's the app's job to make sure that it that it provides that stuff and is self-contained. Yeah, I guess I don't have anything to add there other than. I, uh... It just, it doesn't feel that, I agree, it doesn't feel modern. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. um, like something to dwell on. So moving well, on. It, it's just, I mean, again, like it's just, it's, it's, I mean, things like having a, a built-in HTTP server is just like, it's like you get it for free now, right? It's like one line right. of code in, in Node, right? It's, or you can, you know, have an Nginx proxy or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's just so easy to do versus, you know, not, you know, seven years ago, that wasn't the case at all. Um, right, so. but it doesn't feel. I mean, I guess even then, it doesn't feel totally necessary to me anymore. Like, why bother having an HTTP server in an app if I can, you know, use Docker and make sure that it's in that way? Like now, Docker kind of is my app, and the app itself made it maybe just doesn't care. Like, it doesn't need to deal with that. So the self-contained part is maybe the boundary of where that is is maybe changed. Yeah, although I mean, even I mean, we uh, so like. HTTP is an example. Um, you know, we have things like ELBs that are doing, you know, the the front end there for that. And, um, but they they're still talking HTTP back to our back to our app, and that's still going inside the container itself as well. So inside the container, we still have to be able to speak HTTP. All right. I guess that's um, what I'm getting at. So maybe let's let Sue talk about this. So. Mm-hmm. My thought is there is less of a need now. Now that there's, I, I feel like it's safer to assume that your app is going to be running inside of something that can handle it. 
So whether whether it's additional other third parties that you just make sure are there in your Docker file, or whether it's stuff that's in AWS that also you know knows how to talk to your Docker image um, to your running container, like your app, like the thing that you're making with your code and building, doesn't need to do some of that fundamental stuff. Maybe like it, it doesn't need like you don't need to ever test it. Like I think that's the point of this is like if the app is completely self-contained, then I can test it as a unit, um, and then I can deploy it into a system that no longer doesn't need those those capabilities that it had when I tested it as a unit. And so what I'm saying is, eh, it doesn't need to be tested as a unit anymore. You can always assume that I can test it via the image, or always assume that I can even test it in a bigger in a bigger environment, like with serverless stuff, like a lambda function, like. You can't test that in the unit anymore. Like you just like a lambda function doesn't have all the stuff that it needs on its own. You have to build some stuff for that to even work. A lambda function has to be sitting in another thing a lot of times. So see what I'm see what I'm getting with that? It's like, yeah, 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 I don't know that apps need to be self-contained because you can assume that the extra stuff is there for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think given given the current state of things and things like containers and serverless, like it's just the infrastructure and just what you provide versus what you get as a service um, has changed a little a little bit. So mm-hmm. like you know with, with containers like it's this whole isolation thing and port binding is really pretty straightforward because it's like you can't you're not really talking to the outside world at all, right? It's just everything's in there. So it's like if your app wants to talk HTTP, then you better have configured it. Your app needs to expose itself as a as an HTTP server. Um, mm-hmm. And your app could be as simple as like a shared object library that you know Nginx depends on. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to yep. make it capable of running on on its own. Right. Yeah. You just you just you're, when you set up your container, you just need to make sure you have Nginx set up. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because every, exactly. because inside the container itself, there has got to be that. That, that HTTP server. So, right. So yeah. So it's just it's at the, so at the risk of playing a little inside baseball there. I think you and I are agreeing. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, this is outdated, and you don't necessarily need to worry about it. Just because like you don't have to worry about it because it's like you're not going to get very far if you do if you don't. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it's and it's so easy to take care of. Right. It's mm-hmm. just this is it's not something you have to think about too much. Right? Maybe a maybe a, a more modern way of saying this would be. Um, Make sure that in the make sure that you've thought about how you're going to test this, and that you're you know how you're going to run your app, and that the different ways you're going to run your app are all sort of supported easily. So if you're going to run it on your local machine, or if you're always going to run it in the cloud every single time, or if you're going to run it on on your machine and other people's machines, like just think about the runtime environments of your application and make sure that they're all covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. All right. Cool. Well, for for such a such a boring, simple one that we, we agreed was was kind of dated, we it's got the most attention so far. So let's <laughs> right. Moving on, eight concurrency. Um, this one uh, very much is related to the um, factor six processes. Where here it's just saying that the scale out model um, is via the process model. Um, so again, processes are first class citizens, um, because they're stateless, we have a, a share nothing horizontally partitioned model of scaling, right? So adding more concurrency is a very simple and reliable operation, right? We just add more processes, um, and away we go. And so this is very much the constant, you know, web stateless web apps, right? Like you have a load balancer and 
you know, you have, you have two, two processes going, um, traffic goes up, you had a third one. And now instead of having, you know, if they were, 50, if they can handle 50 requests a second each now, instead of being a hundred requests a second total, you now have 150 requests a second capacity. Um, and you can keep scaling, um, that way that, that horizontal scaling. So, so scale out via process, um, is a, is a, is a factor eight of, of this. Mm-hmm. Easy peasy. Yeah. Nothing um, to disagree with there. Yeah. So moving on nine is disposability. Um, and really what this is saying is you need to make sure your, your, your apps processes are disposable. I mean, they can be started or stopped at any moment's notice. Um, and it should be able to deal with that. You know, you should be thinking about your startup and shutdown. So startup should, the app should start up as quickly as possible. Um, so minimize that startup time. And then you should also have a graceful shutdown, right? So when you, you know, when you receive like a SIG term, properly handle that, do whatever cleanup you need to do, and then shut down. And again, do this in a very, um, you know, as quickly as possible um, uh, manner. So uh, you should also think about, you know, your app should also be architected to handle unexpected non-graceful terminations, right? Because these will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could have like a, an EC2 could just be terminated um, underneath of you. So you're not going to get much notice, but the app should at least be able to handle that. And you should right. be thinking about it. Like, what, what if that does happen? Because it will happen. So you don't want to be in a state now where you're, um, you know, in an unknown state or, or you don't want to be in a, a corrupted state. So, you know, how does, you know, what's going to happen to your app if, if, if that does happen? So if I were writing this, I might have decided to go with a 10-factor app instead of 12 and just had processes include three sub-things, right? Because we've talked about, this is the third thing we've talked about that's just really about processes. One, The first one was make them stateless. The second one was do scaling with them. And the third one is clean up after yourself and make, them, make it so that it's easy to just kill them off and your app is, is happy and fine. Mm-hmm. They're really just all really about, hey, processes are the number one, you know, the, they're the first-class citizen of the app and Treat them that way. Yep. And like similarly, you know, dependencies um, and port binding Mm -hmm. um, could have been considered as one as well. So now we're down to nine, I think. Right. And um, I'm able to. You know, we can get get, get down to like the three factor app, right? (laughs) Right, right. Um, Yeah, exactly. Actually, I should say five factor app, which is what we're going to be talking about next time, I think. Right. um, Okay. So after disposability, 10. Um, so characteristic 10 is um, dev prod parity. Um, and so with this thing, what this particular point is making is just keep all of your environments as close and as similar as possible, right? So don't, don't use different backing resources in dev versus prod, um, you know, <laughs> keep My those. My dev, Postgres and prod, that would be scary. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, using something like um, simple DB locally and then, you know, Postgres and and, and broad, right? So you want to keep your environments as close as possible. And then you also want to keep, use continuous integration and continuous deployment to keep the gap between those small, right? So you don't want, so this, again, just modern, you know, CI, CD pipelines, you want to be deploying very often um, and you want to keep those, those deploys small, the, the, the amount of um, change small, and that reduces your risk. So the the longer you wait between releases, so like if you go and make a bunch of changes to your staging environment, and you know that goes on for 
weeks or months or whatnot. And then when you go and now say, oh, now I'm going to go deploy to prod, it's like, okay, this ends up being a big deal, right? Where it's like all hands on deck, like what's going to go wrong? Like maybe we have downtime, right? So, and that's because you've, you've, you've batched up all that stuff and the gap has gotten really big. So mm-hmm. resist that, um, you know, have a, you know, change, handle change much more frequently, keep the changes smaller, um, keep the gap between your environments as small as practical. Right. And there's another piece of this that I think is really important and it's not always feasible. Like not like if you're a global company with millions and millions of users, you might not be able to have your stage like physical infrastructure match your production physical infrastructure, like, you know, 100,000 machines on each. But to the extent you can, it does feel like, you know, pay the extra 50, 100 bucks a month for for having two servers in stage as well as prod, right? Like, don't don't skimp and try to save money by having a pretty, you know, a noticeably different physical architecture in your staging environment because you're going to miss a few bugs, especially if you go from, like, anything, anything that, like, in prod has got two of them and you go down to one of them in stage, that is often a, a place where you'll have issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's fine if stage has two and prod has three, but it's really never okay if stage has one and prod has two. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely look at those situations and, you know, ask yourself like, you know, what is the the required effort here that will reduce that risk but also do it in right. a pragmatic way that's not going to break the bank. And um, one issue with all hands on deck that was, you know, we've had it happen in our own company where, where because we didn't test things, you know, we didn't have two load balancers or two databases or whatever in staging. And then one issue that brings all hands on deck and spend, you know, people spend five hours to 10 hours trying to figure it out. Well, that's just like two years worth of lost, you know, like the, all the money you just saved by not having two of those things in staging, you just lost it by yeah. having all hands on deck, yeah. like, you know, yeah. at their high bill rates. Yeah, absolutely. Or, I mean, just, you know, or just, an, just an outage of a site or whatever. Yes, right? like, yes, kind of that like too. How many lost sales or lost customers, yeah, absolutely. like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, things like, I mean, we have just incredible tools now with doing things like infrastructure as code. So being able to spin up environments, like these things don't have to be running all the time either, right? Mm-hmm. So you can, mm-hmm. you can, you know, you can do it with like 10 servers or whatnot, right? Um, but they only have to be running for a few hours maybe. Um, mm-hmm. so, totally. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, moving on, 11 is logs. Um, and so this is just saying, treat your logs as event streams. Your app really shouldn't concern itself with with routing or storage of of the logs, you know, don't attempt to write or manage log files, right? So just think of it as a stream. Logs are important. This this particular point, the reason why it was written, any any idea like what motivated them to to include this? Yeah, yeah, because it's Heroku and you weren't allowed to write logs. Like you had to Heroku was responsible for managing logs for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, like you know, that's just sort of helps Helps them make sure that you're not painting yourself into a corner mm-hmm. when you decided to play to Heroku. Yeah, see, I, I never, I've never used Heroku. Um, you know, I was never a customer. Um, but when I read this, like the thing that comes to mind is just like running out of disk space, right? This is yep, like yep. this is like the reason why they included this in here because if you're writing to files, 
at some point your disk can get full and mm-hmm. that's that's a deal killer right so mm-hmm. don't write to disk so yeah and with heroku like you would deploy stuff to heroku and then you would do heroku logs and then heroku would send you back like the last 100 lines of your logs which is, mm-hmm. just wasn't sufficient so then you could like sign up for additional log service where you could go search logs and do whatever you wanted but but the main thing was that if your application just Bit logs to standard error and standard out, then mm-hmm. Heroku would take care of them from there. So, yeah. so that kind of, you know, it all kind of lines up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so that's exactly what this point says. Just write to write to standard out and, you know, have something else capture that and do whatever it needs to do with that, with that stream, whether it's something like, you know, a pass service like Heroku that's, that's, that's capturing that for you, whether it's um, Docker letting Docker capture that information um, with its log driver or whether you're shipping them over to a, to a third-party service like, like Sumo Logic or Logly or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. All right. Drum roll. <laughs> Number 12. Got your shoes off? Yeah. All right, here we are at 12. Last one, um, admin processes. And um, this one kind of feels a little anticlimactic because it's not all too terribly interesting, but it's just saying like if you have any um, utility code or admin or management tasks that you need to do, and so like examples would be like, you know, code for doing database migrations or maybe you have like a a script, a one-time script that's run to like clean up some data, right, or to change the format of something um, or maybe go fix something in in um, in your database. All that kind of code should be packaged up with the application code in that same that same repo. Um, it should leverage all the same like shared library. And what, it should just be a part of that that code base, right? So run it alongside the rest of the app, and so you don't have any kind of synchronization or, or drift issues with it. Mm-hmm. So that why didn't my admin task work? Oh, well, because I updated the the repo, you know, the mm-hmm. app and or the database schema or whatever. And oh, if you just kept them together and tested them together, then you wouldn't run into that. Yep. It exactly. also says like it says run them as one-off processes. And I think that there may be times when that's not necessarily true. So that that I guess means like if you've got admin stuff that's maybe doing database cleanup or whatever sort of file cleanup or something, don't have your main process do that. But I could imagine that sometimes you might start building some of that into like your own console and it could actually be run inside whatever process is kind of doing stuff, right? But in the case of microservices, then it'll be totally separate because you'll probably write your own separate admin microservice that takes care of that stuff. Although, I'm just kind of arguing with myself here. <laughs> if it's something like cleaning up a database, you've got one database per microservice, so the, pro- you know, the process that cleans up that database is likely to be the same process that accesses, you know, the same main process. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm just that that's I read that in here. Run admin management tasks as one-off processes. It's sort of like eh, maybe sometimes you won't do that. I yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm thinking it, it, about Heroku again. Like Heroku came from the Rails world largely, and there's like this this um, thing called Gem. Or no, sorry, called Bundler. And then, uh, another command that's slipping my tongue or slipping. Rake, rake, that's what I'm looking for. So you can run these rake commands, and rake commands can go do stuff. They can they can actually, they're really pretty interesting because they can access the main code base and make it do something. So they can say, go use all this code I wrote and call this function inside of it. Or they can say, um, go go talk directly to the database that this, this code knows about and do something to that database. Or they can just do, you know, they can do various things, but they're run as separate processes. So I think that's part of where this comes from. Like 
that world of rake tasks where you're taking advantage of the code you wrote in the monolith, but not but running outside of the monolith process. I think that mm-hmm. maybe is where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is going to come down to perspective and how you define things and whatnot, right? So mm-hmm. it's like one off, I mean, you could have like this janitor task that every six hours goes and does some pruning of your data. Um, and you could still call that a one-off process. It's just a scheduled task. That's a one-off pro- But it, you, the important point is that it's still leveraging the same code base as mm-hmm. whatever data that it's manipulating. And again, the, the microservices model serves us really well here. And, and mm-hmm. all of these principles really apply to that. So mm-hmm. if it's accessing the database of a microservice, then it probably belongs in that as part of that same map. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Um, maybe just to wrap up, just um, you know, a quick thinking about like, okay, so what's, what's missing? I mean, it's been seven years since this was first published. Is this complete or like, are there things that we should, you know, continue to add to this? Um, and, you know, I, th- I think it's definitely, it's ripe for update and there's a lot of things that could be added. feels like things like um, even like testing is really not in here or um, there's really not a lot about robustness. There's just a lot of, I think there, I mean, we could, we could argue, you know, for, for a bunch of um, other characteristics to be added to this. Um, mm-hmm. There's been some, you know, conversations about this. And one of the more ones that's gained traction is argued for adding three additional factors. And those are um, telemetry, security, and API first philosophy. Right. And so these all make sense. I mean, you can call, you can kind of think of telemetry as being logs plus plus, right? It's, it's not just logs, but it's just, you know, metrics and everything else associated with it, right? So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How long requests are taking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, security, very, you know, super, super important, especially nowadays. And it's, it's only gotten more important. So directly addressing that feels pretty important. This, you know, concept of API first philosophy. I mean, this is definitely the way that we, we build apps now, right? Like expose, expose the functionality via an API. Um, and that's how you talk to these, to these backing services. Um, and your app can be a backing service for some other app, right? And that's the whole microservice model and philosophy. So I think those three definitely make sense. And again, I think we could, you could probably even talk about, you know, even more than that, that goes into to building a really, a really good web app. Um, but as we started off with them, um, you know, with this, if you just do these 12 things and kind of like ask yourself, like, Hey, how am I doing on these 12 things? Like you're way ahead of the game. Um, mm-hmm. And the, these all still really do apply. And it's kind of like table stakes. Mm-hmm. Well, that was super interesting. And next week we'll get, I think this is a very technology-focused view of architecture. And so next week, I think we'll take a step back and we will look at architecture and running software more from the point of view of the whole business. Exactly. Uh, Looking forward to that. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Rich. Bye. Bye. Nobody listens to podcast outros. Why are you still here? Oh, that's right. It's the outro song. Come talk to us at mobicast.fm or on Reddit at r slash mobicast. 